glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where we continue to help you with your wallet as we deal through the effects of coronavirus. So I want to give a quick update to you on things that were really supposed to be ready for prime time today, including the payroll protection program, the unemployment compensation including the federal additional $600. And these two programs that should have, uh, well, the, the goal, I should say, was to have these two programs ready to take off by today. And both are off to very, very difficult starts. The payroll protection program has a revolt going on from banks. The uh, U.S. Department of the Treasury and the SBA did not issue the regulations till last night. The regulations, the banks are very unhappy with the wording of several parts of the regulations, and a number of banks are not going to process loans until they have clarification from the federal government. Other banks have gone into a crouch position and said when they do make loans, they're only going to make them to people who had existing relationships with the bank either back in 2019 or earlier or earlier this year, that they're not going to allow someone to come in from a business who does not have an account with the bank and do an application for the payroll protection program. The problem is... The banks calculate that there's just downside for them with the way the regulations were issued by the U.S. Treasury, that the banks expect they'll lose money on these loans that, for the most part, can turn into grants for businesses, and that the banks, unfortunately, by their interpretation, face liability if somebody defrauds the federal government with an application for this program. So what's basically going on is the banks are pushing back, trying to get new regulations issued that will give them safe harbor if someone applies for a loan who turns out to be a fraudster. The banks also are lobbying for a raise in the interest rates. The interest rate can be as high as 4%, but the initial... A number that was stated by the feds was half a percent. It's now been raised to 1% today, but the banks want it back up to the 4%. So we'll see what happens over the weekend in this tug of war between the banks and the Trump administration about how the payroll protection program will operate. Second thing, unemployment compensation. The intention of the Congress was to get money into people's hands right away. The latest guess on the percent of Americans that are now unemployed is 13 to 15%. So a huge number of people unemployed. And state labor departments are very upset with the U.S. Department of Labor, feeling that the U.S. Department of Labor has let them down, issuing regulations on how to carry out Congress's intent of the $600 a week for four months of federal money for people who are unemployed 
plus the expansion of unemployment benefits to people other than those that would normally count. That's the gig workers, self-employed, independent contractors. So there's a lot more questions than answers yet. And first, one thing, the federal government is operating much quicker than normal right now at trying to get these things done. The promises made about how quickly money would get into people's hands were unrealistic. But by setting these unrealistic deadlines, my hope is that next week will bring some clarity on both of these efforts to get money into people's hands. The third thing is a complete and total fail on the banks to provide mortgage relief. Banks are either not following the law or don't know how to follow the law, the third stimulus law, on how to give mortgage relief, which, based on the latest estimate I saw, 70% of mortgage borrowers should be eligible for forbearance on your mortgage loan for an initial six-month period, followed by an additional potential six months, if necessary, which I don't think it will be. But the thing is, the banks and the mortgage loan servicers are not doing what they're supposed to do. And the federal government needs to come down hard on them. And one of the worst moves I've seen, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, instead of protecting consumers, is giving banks wide latitude to mess up on reporting to credit bureaus without having to fix that in the normal timely basis required under the original law that established the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and that is inexcusable. Kim, I'd like to stop there and go to questions. So what would you like to start with? All right. Well, let's start with Christina today. She says that she has a question regarding student loan payments. She works for a large nonprofit hospital, and she's part of the 10-year student loan forgiveness plan. She understands that payments will be automatically put into forbearance, but she doesn't know if they'll still count towards her student loan forgiveness plan. And she said she's doing a great job and she just doesn't want to screw it up. Well, good for you counting down the 120 months. So the months of the forbearance will count click away months of the 120. So you'll get through September credit as if you've made a payment, even though you won't have made a payment. And the guidance issued by the U.S. Department of Education is clear as could be on it. You can even go to the Department of Education website at ed.gov, and you can read and print out, which I would recommend, the wording that they have published that says, clearly, there's no hemming and hawing about it, that these months will count towards your 120. Joel? Clark Bryan says, I'm a contract employee in the medical device sector, and I have been impacted by the reduction in elective cases at hospitals. I was thinking about foregoing my mortgage payment for a few months so I can take care of the essentials. Is this going to hurt my credit score? So that was what I was just referring to with the idiotic guidance from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. 
And it is not supposed to hurt your credit standing at all if you apply to your mortgage lender for forbearance because of a decline in your income and you are allowed that forbearance um, on, again, let let me go back a step. This is on most loans. Your loan behind the curtain has to be underwritten directly or indirectly by the federal government, which, again, is more than two-thirds, apparently, of outstanding mortgage loans. And so you go to your lender, and if you can reach somebody, you tell them you want to apply for forbearance. Now, the question that we're facing is people have a grace period till typically the 15th of April to make a payment on time before you're considered to be late. Um, As far as reporting to credit bureaus, it would be longer than that. It would be if your mortgage went unpaid into May. But the thing is, is the reports are coming from every direction that the banks are not in a timely basis processing forbearance and the mortgage processors not either. There's no excuse, no excuse, because the law is clear. So what will happen if there's a delay in getting that forbearance from your lender, and again, you're one of the more than two and three people whose loan will qualify, is there may be, with a delay, the possibility that a lender will report you as delinquent And that's where you'll challenge at consumerfinance.gov that they listed you delinquent when they're not supposed to under the law. That process is what's going to take longer to work your way through than it should. So I think that's a theme of what I'm talking about right now on the show. There's so many efforts that are going on that were drafted put into law, but carrying them out requires the cooperation of multiple parties. And banks generally don't turn on a dime. And sometimes if they don't like something, they just ignore what the law is. So I'm going to keep a spotlight on the banks, and I expect them to do what is required under the law. Kim? Right. I'm going to paraphrase on behalf of Stanley and Mike and quite a few others. And the general idea is what happens to college students who also work part time, say they're 19, 20 years old, they file taxes, but their parents claim them as a dependent. Do they get any helicopter money? No helicopter money. And by the way, Kim, you had mentioned to me off the air that some people were, um, well, it may not have been you who mentioned, somebody mentioned to me that people were Uh, complaining or did not understand the term helicopter money? It wasn't me, but yeah, go ahead and define that. So let me explain that, and then I'll go into this with um, college students. So helicopter money is an informal term that economists use when an economy suffers an economic shock or a big rise in unemployment. And the idea is to keep an economy from declining further you just throw money out of helicopters is kind of where the idea came from. And that's the idea of the stimulus money of $1,200 per adult, $500 per dependent, 16 and under, is to put money into families' hands so they can pay for food, 
pay for other things that they need, and that money goes back into the economy and helps the economy have more life than it would otherwise. So don't know why Congress did this, but they specifically did a carve-out that cut people 17 and older who are dependents who don't file their own independent tax return, and, and they can file a tax return, but they live as dependents of an adult, usually their parents, it cut them out of receiving the $1,200. It also cut out senior citizens who are a dependent of their adult children. So there were certain things that Congress, in its wisdom, chose when they hurriedly passed the third stimulus law to exclude people. So a college student working part-time will not be eligible, if they are a dependent, for the stimulus money, but I'm waiting for final regulations from the Department of Labor, obviously just like the states are, but my understanding from the statute is that you will be eligible for some amount of unemployment compensation, even though you won't be eligible for the helicopter money. And that is, let me tell you, I'm playing horseshoes here because I'm going only with what I gather was congressional intent, but we have to wait for the regulations from the U.S. Department of Labor to be able to truly answer that correctly. Joel? Clark Drew, on the similar note, says, I'm single with five dependent children. My adjusted gross income in 2018 was well over 99000 so I know I'm not entitled to the $1,200 of helicopter money you've talked about, but what about the $500 per child? So some of these provisions are clear as mud, but it seems really clear in this case that if you lose your benefit to stimulus money, the $1,200, you also lose the $500 for each child. It's a phase-out in a ratio, and once your amount that you're eligible for goes from 1200 to zero, it also goes from 500 to zero for each child. I'm really sorry to tell you that. Here on the Clark Howard Show, instead of you asking your questions directly to me, I ask you to go to clark.com slash ask and post, and producers Kim and Joel are asking your questions for you. What's up, Kim? So Michael says, I have a dependent care flexible spending account, which I put the full $5,000 into each year. With COVID-19 and having my family home for potentially months, there's a chance that we might not get to use that full $5,000. Has this been addressed by any of the stimulus bills? I haven't noticed anything. So there is what's known as a qualifying event provision in how FSAs work. And the fact that the change in the cost of care for your kids is so clear now that kids can't go to child care, you do have the ability with your employer, and they may not even be aware of this, to trigger a qualifying event change in contributions for the remainder of the year. So the fact that your kid can't go to child care gives you that mid-year ability to change it. And again, what you tell your benefits department, human resources, whatever they call it where you work, is you tell them that you wish to reduce your contributions to your FSA mid-year because of the qualifying events 
surrounding coronavirus. And if you have someone who says, I don't know what you're talking about, if you go search it online, you'll find several briefings that explain how you petition your employer with this qualifying event circumstance to reduce your contributions. Joel? Clark John wants to know, is the stimulus payment dependent on gross income or adjusted gross income? Adjusted gross income. So that makes a difference for many people because your stated pay may be significantly different than your adjusted gross income. So that is to your favor with that. Now, the feds will decide based on your 18 or 19 return whether they feel you qualify for the full amount of stimulus or not. Glad you're here with us on the Clark Howard Show, where we're all working together to get through the difficulties health-wise and financially of coronavirus. And we are hard at work serving you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com. And I will tell you, I'm doing so many different interviews around the country with radio and television and also print. Do we still call it print? Anyway, and I'm learning a lot by the questions I'm being asked by reporters that are perspectives I haven't really been thinking about. And I wanted to take a couple of minutes and share with you what I've learned from what I'm being asked. And as people try to absorb what has been an anxiety-producing spring, I want to tell you that I believe that we are going to be better off than people's worst fears by far. You know, we are in a time right now where the real unemployment rate that is a lagging indicator, how stats come out, I mean, we're probably at a point that we are at 15% of Americans' unemployed now who would like to be working. It is a huge number, and it is ugly as people went from feeling secure in what they did a month ago to worried where they're going to buy food now. Well, I believe that we and the shock of everything we're trying to absorb don't appreciate the fact that scientists and medicine will in the interim come up with procedures to treat people that are being tried trial and error right now, but that we will go to a disease management mode quicker than we realize right now to be able to deal with coronavirus. The other thing is that the best guess that I'm seeing as to when we really come out of hibernating is the second or third week of May based on the infection rates in the United States. That That is a time period, you know, where we hear about mid-April, then the end of April and stuff. Realistically, we're probably talking about second or third week of May to get to a point where we bend the curve of fatalities and illnesses in this phase of coronavirus. And if we hang and do what we're being asked to do with sheltering in place, quarantining, isolating, whatever term you want to use, that we will in this first phase have an enormous effect. 
Second thing is I called it first phase because the second phase is we have to come up with a protocol like the countries that have been successful with coronavirus have done. And protocol means a method of testing that is uniform around the country and the procedures are understood by our fellow Americans. Second, if somebody does test positive, that then they go into a protocol of either isolation, observation, treatment, or intensive care. That that is the standard thing that has worked in other countries. If we do those things, then we go back to work and we continue to be able to work and bring the economy back to life. And I want to tell you something about people that are so worried about what's going to happen with the economy with us being told we need to shelter in place for these weeks moving forward. Well, there was a study done by MIT and the Federal Reserve that found that looking back city by city during the Spanish flu in 1918 and 1919, which was a much more deadly event than coronavirus is going to be, as ugly as coronavirus is, it's nothing like what we suffered in the United States with the Spanish flu. Back then, there was a failure of leadership from the president during the Spanish flu, and governors didn't have the sway that they have now. So local communities, city by city, were setting rules for how to handle the Spanish flu. What the study of, by MIT and the Federal Reserve found and it's not even close, is that cities that went strong on isolating their citizens, social distancing, quarantining, sheltering in place, whatever, we need an overriding term for it. We don't have it yet. The cities that did that had a much quicker and much stronger economic recovery than the cities that didn't. And the reason is, is that the failure to properly shut down the growth of the virus led to far more economic and health dislocations as a result. So what we're doing right now, as brutal as it is for our wallets, as disruptive as it is for people as entrepreneurs, and as horrific as it is for people whose businesses may fail and not reopen, it will allow a return to economic growth a lot quicker than we would have otherwise. Kim, who you got now? All right, this is from Betty. She says, what is the best way for me to be getting groceries? I want to be a good citizen and I don't want to put brave workers at risk. Should I be doing delivery or should I be going myself and trying to social distance? Wonderful question. And there's so much new news on this today that is positive and helpful. So first of all, if you do order from Instacart or Shipped, both have gone to new procedures that go into effect today and tomorrow. And the new procedures are going to be about providing protective gear. At least this is what Instacart and Shipped say they're doing. So I'll have to go with what they say that if you are an Instacart or shipped worker, you are to be supplied now 
with safety gear, protective gear, so that you are safer as you're in stores shopping for other people. That's number one. Number two, if you order groceries from Amazon, Amazon had a very bad week involved with some brutally awful behavior reported about Amazon um, not caring about their employees and, in fact, firing an employee who was on the front lines trying to publicize the lack of safety for Amazon workers in the warehouse and workers in Whole Foods stores. And information leaked out that Amazon had specifically conspired to discredit this individual by spreading lies to the media about this individual who they fired for leading a movement to create better safety for Amazon employees. Amazon now is doing the right thing after doing the wrong thing. And Amazon is now performing fever checks when people show up to shifts, at least they say they are, checking 100,000 people a day, temperature, and now providing masks and other protective gear to employees of Amazon and Whole Foods. Now, again, just because they say they're doing it, the proof will be in the pudding if they really do. But I am horrified that Jeff Bezos, the world's richest man, has behaved, and I blame him because it's his company, has behaved so callously about his employees and now at least turning that around. Now, retailers, the question going into retail stores, Target announced yesterday that they are providing employees with disposable face masks and gloves at the beginning of each shift, and I think that starts tomorrow, that they will have the supplies at most locations. In addition, they have set a shopper cap for every location of Target, and it depends on the square footage of the store, and then once that cap has been reached in the store, outside there will be markings where you line up for your turn to enter the store with people marked off at six-foot intervals to keep people safe. This is similar to what a number of retailers have done, but every grocery store needs to do the kind of thing Target's doing because we're not putting ourselves in a safe environment if we're not going anywhere, but then we go to the grocery store and it's packed wall to wall. Even if it means you have to cool your heels waiting till you can enter, it's much better to do that. So I guess I went all the way around the barn, Kim, (laughs) because there's so much changing today and tomorrow with shopping that if you hire somebody to shop and there's now an environment where that worker shopping for you is safe out of harm's way or is safe and out of harm's way as we know to do, then don't feel guilty about having someone do the shopping for you. Second, if you do choose to go to a store and you get there and the store is not implementing any safety features to protect their employees or to provide proper spacing for customers, then don't shop at that store 
until they've created a safe environment for you and the workers. Joel? Clark Zoe wants to know, he says, my wife and I have an emergency fund and we're able to work from home. We're considering taking advantage of the U.S. mortgage and student loan pauses and redirecting that money to fully fund a Roth for each of us and pay extra money towards my wife's private student loans. She's got 70000 at 7% interest rate. What are your thoughts on that? We've heard that we'll be able to tack those missed mortgage payments on to the end of our 30-year fixed, and we are in no rush to pay off the home. So uh, you're going to pay additional interest for many years to come on those months that you go into forbearance on the mortgage. The forbearance um, is only available if you have lost your job. You have to have a qualifying circumstance because of coronavirus with your hours either being cut back or you losing your job. You can't just get forbearance on your mortgage if you don't have the qualifying circumstance. On the federal student loans, you do have the ability to um, put those into forbearance automatically regardless of your circumstance. You don't. In fact, you're not supposed to have to do anything. So you can do that. But you have the private loans, and that's a higher priority right now than funding a Roth IRA. I want you to throw every penny of money that would have gone to your federal student loans over these months through September towards the balance of the private student loans because they're a curse, and as much as you can reduce those, reduce those. Kim? Shana says, I am the board president of a small two-staff person nonprofit. We primarily lean on volunteers. We've been negatively impacted by COVID, and we're not sure whether or not we should be applying for PPP or EIDL. In the meantime, is there any reason that we shouldn't go ahead and apply for EIDL for the $10,000 grant? It seems too good to be true that it's paid out within three days of the application and forgiven even if we're denied the loans. Does this mean that it's also forgiven if we're approved for the loan but decide not to accept it? That is a great question. That would be, as I read it, that would be considered to be Uh, potentially a fraud if you did an application took the ten thousand then they said here's your loan and you said oh (laughs) i was just kidding but i don't know that you'd want to turn down the disaster loan money because it carries a very low interest rate and you don't know how long you'll need money to float the operation of your nonprofit in the event that we get through the whole coronavirus emergency and you never needed the money, then it's going to be really easy for you to pay back that loan. So if you do decide to take the $10,000 grant for the nonprofit, follow through if you are approved for the disaster loan and take the money. Joel? Clark Sandra says, my daughter is seven months pregnant, so she's high risk and she works as a surgical tech in an operating room. Can she go out to protect her and her baby and draw unemployment until after all this COVID stuff blows over? She can take unemployment, but she does not qualify for the paid leave provisions of the, I think that was the second stimulus law. So she could, in a situation where it's not safe for her to work, she could qualify for the unemployment compensation, barring some kind of curveball issued in the U.S. Department of 
labor regulations that I told you earlier this show, we still don't know exactly what those are going to say. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. If you have a question for me, please go to Clark.com slash ask and post it. And so we can get to as many topics as possible. Producers Kim and Joel are asking your questions for you. And Kim, who do you have a question from? This is from Ryan. My son's third installment for tuition, room, and meal plan is due. However, he is home for the rest of the semester. Uh, he goes to a state school, and they're not being clear on crediting money. He wants to wait and give them time to figure it out, but he's afraid that he'll be kicked to the bottom of the line if he does. And he says money is really tight for them. As it is for so many families right now, and this is this is tough. So uh, as I had a question about this days ago about what do I do? They sent me a bill for tuition, room, and board. There is no room and board. And so colleges need to adjust, and many already have. If you were to pay anything, I would pay only the tuition portion of the installment that's due because you don't want to pay for the room and board portion while the college hems and haws about what refunds it's going to make. So better they not have that portion of the money. And colleges are in a bind just like the rest of us with budgets anticipating um, revenue that they would have to meet expenses. And they can't reduce the expenses as much as the lack of services they're now delivering to students. So this is, this is a hard thing, but I would definitely not pay the room and board portion of the bill. Joel? Clark Bryan says, as a small business owner during this crisis, should I consider putting my automatic investments to my Roth IRA on a temporary hold? Depends on how stable your business is. If your business is okay, you see the clear path for you moving forward, continue to contribute to your Roth. There's a real advantage over time with values depressed and maybe getting more depressed in the investment markets. If your business is uh, facing tough times for this, yes, I would discontinue it to hoard cash. The podcast normally would end here, but because of the unusual circumstances we're in, we have additional content that we recorded earlier today that I'd like you to have access to. And this will continue day by day as long as the events warrant. I wanted to address something that so many of us, in an attempt to stay in touch with loved ones and also in the work environment, are using Zoom. Zoom has come out of nowhere 
to have demand for its services thousands of percent above what it would normally be. And Zoom, to give you an idea, is getting 200 million people a day using it. And it used to be somewhere like 8, 9, 10 million a day, which was popular to start with. But the problem is Zoom is finding that there's a lot of vulnerabilities in its platform, or in fact, really others are finding those vulnerabilities. Zoom has apologized, but the reality is if you are doing sensitive work meetings and you're talking about sensitive information over Zoom, there's a double risk. One, the possibility that people would be able to see it who could be competitors or a threat to your business, or that your actual computer itself could be subject to vulnerabilities using Zoom. So I want to tell you that in a work environment, you may have alternatives. I don't. Um, I'm doing TV typically two reports a day right now from my home instead of from the studio. And we're using Zoom to do those reports. And it's working really well on the TV side. But the vulnerabilities that may be there have me using a Chromebook now instead of a laptop to do Zoom because Chromebooks are not subject to having viruses loaded on them. But if you want to know what alternatives there are, I read an article on The Verge. The Verge is a technology blog, a technology site, and they've done a very thorough write-up of the alternatives. For our websites, we're using an ancient Google product called Hangouts. And Hangouts has been around long enough that there should not be any security issues using Hangouts. We're able to have a very large number of us in our Hangouts. And there are the old reliables, or I'd call it the old unreliable, using Skype. A lot of people have had a lot of technical problems using Skype right now, but Verge lists a lot of them that I'm not familiar with at all, like one called Starleaf and another one called Jitsi Meet. If you go look for the Verge article, you may be able to find a platform that is not as popular as you're going to find with Zoom or with uh, something traditional like using Skype This is an alternative platform for you to find different ones to try to see what will work best from a security standpoint and reliability. And here's something else I wanted to talk about today. I want to talk about something that had been steadily growing but is now booming. It's what's known as robo-advisors. Since the dramatic decline in the stock market in the first quarter of this year, with a likely continuation of decline in the second quarter of this year, a lot of people don't know what to do with their money. And that has led to a tremendous uptake in the number of people signing up with robo-advisors. What a robo-advisor is, it's a computer model based on your age and your goals And your sleep at night quotient, which is, is you answer a series of questions about 
how much pressure you can handle from a declining market, it comes up with a portfolio mix for you. And there's no one mix. Each company using computer modeling comes up with its own designs. But I saw in Barron's that TD Ameritrade, which has their own version of a a robo-advisor, that the number of people signing up for it has gone up 150% in the aftermath of the declines caused by coronavirus. And Wealthfront, 70% additional signups. Their competitor, Betterment, 25%. Charles Schwab didn't give the exact number, but told Barron's it was their best signups ever. And now Vanguard has launched their own that, naturally, because it's Vanguard, will likely remain the cheapest of all the choices. It's called Vanguard Digital Advisor, and it requires a minimum investment on your part of $3,000. The cost to be in it is minuscule. The cost for them to manage your money for you, plus the cost of the investments, works out to somewhere around 0.20 of 1%, which is not free, but really, really, really inexpensive. And all these tools essentially start with trying to figure out what your risk tolerance is, how much you can stomach a steep decline in the market, and then taking that data come up with what would be the investments that would get you the greatest possible return without freaking you out when things are in decline. Having a human who gets you to settle down or having a robo that you're comfortable with to ride down and back up is really important for a lot of people because in haste and in fear, A lot of people sell into a decline instead of staying patient. And I'll tell you, for so many people, especially when you're younger and you're early and you're saving your money, doing a robo-advisor can really be a wallet saver. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.